VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, October the 24th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing the program this morning. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So as you just heard Brian Bador say in the VOCM newscast, Incredible forecast in the offing for this week. You know, sunny days, unseasonably warm, too. I think we're going to average about four or five degrees warmer than we normally would in years past at this stage of October. And an absolutely brilliant weekend. You know, so they ran the Cape to Cabot race over the weekend, which is a pretty daunting task. If you've ever driven your car from Cape Spear to Cabot Tower, you know about the hills, and it just looks like something that very unappetizing for or unappealing for anyone to want to run, but they do, and they run it in droves. How about this lady, 84-year-old Florence Barron? So on September 18th, she ran a half marathon. Then she ran the Tele 10 on October the 8th. And then she just completed the 20-kilometer hilly run that is the Cape to Cabot on Sunday. So amazing stuff. 84 years of age. Congratulations, Florence. Something to aspire to be is as active and as ready to go as Florence Barron obviously is. And so, yeah, nice weekend. Right, and and good on those who participate in that particular race. You know, one of the glories of home ownership. I must have missed it last year, but cleaning out the gutters on my place over the weekend, holy moly, little forced action had begun in the gutters. So just a maybe a helpful reminder as we get into the season. And I guess this fella in my neighborhood took the good weather and had a burst of energy. He was putting up his Christmas lights. <laughs> so anywho. All right, so they settled the National League and the American League over the weekend. It will indeed be the Houston Astros and the Philadelphia Phillies are going to meet up for the World Series for getting on Friday. Just a local note or a couple of local notes. So it was today in history, 1992, that the Jays won their first World Series when they beat the Braves in Game 6 in Atlanta. And then there was a lot of joking going around with one fan who was sitting in the stands in Game 3 of the Yankees-Astros series. So he has a striking resemblance to Babe Ruth. He really does. And so the Yankee fans latched onto it. There was all kinds of razz and jokes going around on social media. When I saw the news story, I looked at the picture. Then I looked again and realized it was Brendan Brothers from here, from town. He's at the, one of the founders of Verifin. And he does indeed look a lot like Babe Ruth. Anyway, pretty wild stuff. And the Growlers off to a fine start. Three straight wins over the visiting Reading Royals over the weekend. It took overtime on Saturday night, but they beat him 4-2 Friday night, 4-3 Saturday night, and then dusted him 6-2 yesterday. Three straight, and they hit the road now for their next set of ECHL games. Good weekend for Dawson Mercer. Friday night, the Devils win 2-1. Mercer had a goal and assist. I think he was the first star, so he's having a good start to the season. And just a quick shout-out, whatever you know me, if you want to hear about a young athlete doing good things in any sport, wherever, provincially, nationally, internationally, I try to keep my eyes peeled, but if you can send along some of that information, that would be helpful. I want to say good morning, congratulations to St. John's native and defenseman playing for the Cape Breton Screaming Eagles, Connor Shortle. They lost the other night, but Shortle was player of the game. He's a really composed defenseman, good size, not afraid, lovely family. So way to go, Connor. Off to a good start in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. And good morning and way to go to the Porto Basque under-13 hockey players. 
So we do know, and you heard Brian saying in the newscast, that the federal program for Fiona Relief has been extended to the end of the month. There's been a lot of money raised instead of a lot of work to do. And we hear these stories all the time, whether it be schools or classrooms, minor sports groups, and yes, inside the world of minor hockey. The Port of Basque Under 13 said, you know, they want to be part of giving back to the community. A couple of their players lost their homes during Fiona. And so they're out there doing what they can to be part of the rebuild. And here's a quote coming from Kira Richards. She's the association's director of minor operations. Through minor hockey, you want your kids to learn how to work as a team and, you know, give back and just be well-rounded people. So when this happened to our town, what better way to give back than to come together as a team? Bravo, Kira, and you're absolutely right. So... Normally, Port of Basque would apply, put one of their teams forward for Chevrolet Good Deeds. And we've talked about applicants for the Good Deeds Cup many, many times on this program. But Chevrolet, given the Hockey Canada scandal, has paused the relationship and support for Hockey Canada. But the Port of Basque U13 said, doesn't need to have Chevy in the Good Deeds Cup being dangled. They're going to do what they can for their community. And bravo to them. Okay. We do know when we're all equally frustrated when we hear about wastage of money and or scandalous or ridiculous spending or invoice splitting, as we saw with the Newfoundland and Labrador English-speaking school district. And there's, other, there's many other examples. There was a report uh, put forward in 2020 about the potential for fraud at motor vehicle. So the minister responsible, Sarah Studley, says there's only four outstanding recommendations that have not been fully implemented. And it's a real shame, but I guess human nature kicks in here. We have to do whatever we can to reduce any possibility for scamming, for embezzlement, for invoice splitting, and or how overtime is not, not carefully checked. And if there are still gaps at motor vehicle, let's do it. So this audit is done by the Professional Services and Internal Audit Division at the government. They looked at two offices, Mount Pearl and Grand Falls, Windsor. The report listed eight fraud risks as medium or high. Here's one. A high risk. Car dealerships weren't properly remitting registration fees paid by their customers. So apparently we don't do enough and enough of a deep dive inside the world of car dealers and not putting for the remittance to motor vehicle. In 2019, the Mount Pearl office verified the payments of only four out of 100 dealers. Now, they say the managers are well aware of the issues, but being well aware and doing something about it are two different things. They want to point out another couple of places. So the report says also... Too many people had access to license plates, and the staff did not do the stock inventory often enough. They recommend, the report recommends, just a few people have access to the storerooms and do more regular inventories. Yeah, how about that? Managers verbally approve overtime beforehand, and it's just kept in a, a logbook by hand. So maybe, just maybe, we have to review that and make sure that the managers, because not everyone can remember every conversation with every staffer where they said, yes, this two hours on the Wednesday that you need to work overtime, it's going to be okay. So there's some of these things that don't really stand up to the smell test. So, okay, if there has been 14 of 18 recommendations fully implemented, the minister says the remaining four will be done soon. But it's just another example of we've just got to keep a real firm focus on how government operates and the spending of our money so that's out there if you want to talk about it we're happy to take it on this story getting some traction in my email inbox we all remember the 2021 election here in this province there was a covid outbreak and the day before election day which would have been on in february 
because of the outbreak and a mass exodus of staff and the inability to have enough campaign or pardon me election workers on site for in-person voting of course we went to the mail-in in full and that became its own farcical issue as well it's the longest and costliest election in newfoundland and labrador's history then remember, we were hearing rumbles of a whistleblower talking about whether it be harassment, the toxic workplace, cronyism, nepotism, all of these types of things, and that all pertained to the chief electoral officer, Bruce Chalk, who's also the commissioner for legislative standards. So the citizen's rep did indeed do an investigation. His name is Bradley Moss. Brought it back to the House Management Committee, and they suspended Mr. Chalk in June. Since then... The management committee went to former Chief Justice Derek Crean to have a look at Mr. Moss's, the citizen's representative, Bradley Moss's review of the allegations. Green comes back and says that he thought that Moss's findings were unreliable. And there were some of the allegations based on interviews with people who were willing to come forward and speak with Mr. Moss. Mr. Green says they didn't go far enough and they cannot be accepted as true just based on the work he saw Moss do and the one side that was put forward. Okay. So now, Mr. Chalk, as a result of Mr. Green's work, has been reinstated. So if there are indeed any allegations that would have uh, outcomes leading up to termination, well, we'll see how they proceed on this front. But here's where the rub becomes part of the public sphere. Faith in elections has been eroding. Some of, it play, some of it because absolute baseless garbage, but it's important that the public has a perception of a fair, equitable election with the integrity and oversight required. And it's not to say it didn't happen in this case, even though, remember, how many people were looking to get a mail-in ballot and never got it first and last? So what, what role does the public faith in bodies like Elections NL play when making determinations or decisions about who's working in these offices. So, Mr. Chalk was taken to the woodshed, social media, on this program by many callers during that extended costly election back in February of 2021, went right into March, of course. So, but Mr. Chalk is in, and my email inbox is on fire when it comes to that particular issue. And that's the big question for me is, what role does the public's faith in elections and the handling of elections, what role does it play? Okay, let's keep going, talking about money that the government is happy enough to spend. And this one on the federal front. So I have said many times that the pandemic bounced back and jobs created, almost 87% of those jobs have been created in the public sector. And this is an analysis of some of these jobs and what they mean. The federal civil service grew by more than 35,000 people since April of 2020. Here's some context. So, and this work is done by Treasury Board and various ministers and their departments. The government added over 19,000 jobs in the fiscal year ending of March 2021 and another 16,356 positions in fiscal 2022. In total, the federal government employs 335,957 people across the country. That's a 12% increase compared to pre-COVID, and it's the, the highest and largest number of public sector employees in Canadian history. Okay, on top of that, there was over 28,000 bureaucrats on long-term leave. So they weren't getting full salary, but we're topping up their benefits packages, insurance, pensions, contra pension contributions, what have you. Fiscal 2021, Ottawa spent over $59.5 billion 
billion dollars on personnel costs, salaries, pensions, benefits, and overtime. That's an increase of $4.438 billion from the prior year. So, I mean, this was even a surprise to remember Ke- uh, Kevin Page. He used to be the parliamentary budget officer. He thinks, wow, that's a substantial increase, and he's not wrong. The big whopping increase in numbers of people hired came in four government departments. CRA, of course, was the oversight body for the Canada Mercy Wage Subsidy, CERB. That grew by 9,000 people over the last two years. Employment and Social Development Canada. Uh, of course, they're the crowd responsible for passports, and that's still a boondoggle. They added over 8,500 positions. Immigration, Refugees, and Citizen- Citizenship Canada. They added over 1,750 people. The Public Health Agency of Canada added 1,900 jobs. So 82.2% of federal government employees were in permanent positions, 12.4% in filled temporary jobs. The average cost to the taxpayer for federal government workers is $114,000 per year. So we have seen the wages and benefits for the public sector employees federally outpace inflation for 13 years running. Where in the private sector, we've got the exact same problem. Wage offerings are not commensurate with inflation and cost of living pressure. So when the feds talk about all the jobs they've created that have been created in the country, well, they basically put ads in the paper. That's where a lot of that comes from. Anyway, you want to talk about it, we can do it. And more controversy and questions and conversations to be had. As of Friday, the federal government's new ban on handguns, well, we'll talk about what the ban means, on handguns came into effect. So... There is a freeze on importing, buying, selling, or any type of transfer of handguns. And of course, in Canada, they say it's in an effort to shrink the number of guns on the street. So the pushback is predictable, is that we are punishing law-abiding Canadians. There are some exemptions going to be available for elite sports shooters, for instance, and that might be as many as 8,000 Canadians. The pushback was going to be always the way it always is. You know. When polled, Canadians are in favor of gun control. Remember when they put some 1,500 firearms on a banned list, and now this particular move. Some of the pushback makes sense to me, is that the criminals don't care what laws are on the books. So even organizations like the Toronto Police Association getting right into the politics of this, let's see if I can find their tweet, I printed it out earlier. Here it is from the Toronto Police Association. Criminals will always find ways to get handguns. What's really needed is strong deterrence for those who use them. Bail reform, minimum sentences, and consecutive periods of parole ineligibility for multiple murderers. Okay. There are some good things in this particular bill. It's Bill C-18, is it? No. What's the name of the bill? I got it here somewhere. So there are things like increasing the maximum penalties for gun smuggling and trafficking to 14 years. It once was 10. Allow for the automatic removal of gun licenses from people committing domestic violence or engaged in criminal harassment, like a stalker. Okay. The real focus here, if we're talking about gun violence, is we know, and it's been well understood, the vast majority of illegal handguns in this country are smuggled in from the United States. So the focus and the millions of dollars for all these new measures the federal government has brought forward, most of that investment really belongs at the border. It really does. It's fine to enhance the punishment to 14 years from 10 years. But if we know their guns are coming that way, and that's where the criminal element is getting their guns, let's do more there. So it kind of feels like the government, the federal government is doing the second step first. There has been some enhancement and increased spending for border patrol and border controls. But that's the real focus area if we're talking about public safety. 
I mean, it really truly is. Now, as I mentioned, there's some good things in here with who's allowed to have a gun, period, based on your own criminal background and behavior. But that plan is not going over well in some corners, even though Canadians, when polled, think gun control is appropriate. But let's make sure gun control is a comprehensive plan that absolutely has a keen focus at the border. And in addition to that, the advent of the 3D printer and the ghost gun is going to become a bigger problem than we are probably understanding today. We know it's happening in this province. You know full well it's happening across the country. You know it's absolutely happening in the United States of America. More catching up with technology and understanding where these ghost guns are and how prevalent they are and what kind of punishment should be in play for people who are printing guns. You know, I mean, sure, the 3D printer is cool, but not when it prints a gun because no one's printing those guns for elite sports shooting. So you want to take that on. We can talk about that particular story here as well this morning. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? There's so much to get to, but just a couple of quick ones as we approach... Cooler temperatures over the winter and people worried about the application of a carbon tax to their home heating fuels, which was exempt in our most recent bilateral agreement with the federal government. But lots of hysteria associated with some of these stories as well. And you'll see this tweeted out repeatedly by folks who oppose the federal government and Fairball. You'll hear a lot of tripling the carbon tax. And, you know, how dare the government even consider that leading into the winter months? Just a couple of things, some facts on the table for an appropriate conversation. Even if it happens, and it probably will, it doesn't come into play until next April, so after the winter. And the tripling of carbon taxes happens over eight years, not next year. Because facts are important, and what we're really debating, we need to understand it so we can have the appropriate level of debate. So, yeah, triple over eight years, but it doesn't kick in until April, so it won't be an, in- an increase in your carbon tax bill if it is applied to home heating fuels in this province, even though the uh, f- uh, provincial government is totally not on side with the feds here and are trying to do what they can on that front. We'll see what happens. And, yes, we can talk about the fishing trip. And the need for an ethics commissioner, and we should have an ethics commissioner, there's no question in my mind. It's being put forward, and we're talking about Premier Fury and his father taking a fishing trip to Labrador and staying at the lodge owned by John Risley. Many people are not pleased with what I said about it, but does it put the story to bed for you if the Premier shows how he paid for his own ride? Is that enough for you? And this is the part that I said last week that's not going over well in some corners is the Premier didn't need to go to Labrador to speak to John Risley. He could have had a conversation on the phone, on the cell, from a pay phone in his backyard, down by the river. They could have talked anywhere. So is it important to understand how the trip was funded and paid for? Does that make it go away in your mind? And speaking of uh, email inbox on fire, the conversation regarding the removal of singing the Old Newfoundland at Mon Convocation ceremonies is a big deal in many people's minds. It really, truly is. I think it's a mistake. I hope they revisit it. When we're talking about inclusion, it's hard to understand how inclusion adds up to or equals removing something. So even if we add the O to Labrador, or how about this? We have a music department at Memorial University. Maybe one of their projects in-house can be how to make Labrador included in the standing O to Newfoundland. I guarantee you I got 100 emails about it over the weekend, and 90 out of the 100 were completely in opposition to the decision made by the seven-person committee that thought hauling the old out. And look, if you're in Labrador, please do chime in on this. 
You know what's probably a bigger thing in that decision, as opposed to including Labrador, is the references to God and stuff, isn't it? You know, because that's kind of trickling into a lot of uh, decisions and conversations that governments are having. But anyway, you want to talk about it? Let's do it. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to kick off the week. That can only happen if you join us live on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Good morning, Keith. You're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Patty? Doing fine, thanks. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Just a little concerned with the lack of COVID restrictions here in the province. And, uh, yeah, just wanted to call in and chat about it. There was an announcement on Friday about further easing of the restrictions regarding self-isolation and the, and the like. So where are you placing your most most of your concerns? It's just a lack of transparency. I mean, you, you, you know, Dr. Fitzgerald's making claims that it's safe for people who are infected with COVID-19 to go out in the public, go to work, go wherever. Uh, how? How is it safe all of a sudden? I mean, the, the virus, the only changes to the virus uh, have been uh, we've added vaccine to our, uh, you know, defenses, and it's gotten more contagious. So from, you know, last year this time to now, uh, what is the change that makes this virus safe? Um, I, I just don't see it. I mean, it's a pretty bold claim to say it's it's safe for somebody to, um, they call this virus a level three pathogen. So that's the level of care that the scientists take in the lab when they're dealing with it. So, you know, they're wearing the stuff you see in movies when they're dealing with this. But uh, it's safe for somebody to go out um, while infectious with this virus just because they're wearing a mask for 10 days. I, I, don't, I don't see what, like how she could make that claim, and her stating that is kind of, um, you know, it's creating a false sense of security for a lot of people. Um, like, I've, I've already seen, you know, the celebratory Facebook post, so we don't have to isolate with COVID, thank God, and all this. And I'm like, you know, wow, uh, how do we get to this point? Uh, where the education is, you know, the, the gap is so so wide, and the, you know, the 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 information is so uh, diluted that people think COVID is fine to catch. Um, super concerning, um, and you know, when you couple that with the amount of people that we've lost since Omicron came around, which you know, it's I think it's 232 since Omicron, which is touted as mild came on the scene uh and before that we've we lost 21 people so in 24 months we lost 21 people and in you know 11 months we lost 232 so i i don't see how we could say having covid and going out in public is safe and it's it's very concerning heading into this winter where we're seeing uh you know hospitals are are packed we're seeing pediatric hospitals all over the country are are jammed like they they have nowhere to take the kids some in some cases in ontario they're trying to take them across the border to pediatric hospitals and it's not even cold yet you know so we've been lucky that we've had uh you know an, an unusually warm fall and that we're not getting pounded with snow and people aren't having to stay indoors. And we're seeing all of this happen without the, you know, the, the aid of, of winter. And, uh, you know, it's very concerning. I'm just super concerned. Uh, the, many of these eases come into effect today. So just so people yeah. know exactly what's going on. Effective today, if you develop symptoms 
and you test negative, but your symptoms persist because we know that the rapid antigen test kit can indeed be unreliable. So if you test negative, but your symptoms persist, you can test again in 48 hours. So that's down from uh, 72 hours. Also, anyone with symptoms, regardless of the test result, positive or negative, isolate at home until the symptoms have resolved for 24 hours. They talk about masking in public 10 days after symptoms and the like. But... Here's the question that I, you know, there's certainly a different tone coming from Dr. Fitzgerald when compared to the onset of the pandemic and restrictions that were put in place, is whether or not anyone's really abiding by any of the recommendations anymore. Like, I think there was a lot of people caught off guard when Dr. Fitzgerald had her presser last week to talk about restrictions because for most... They didn't even know or think about any restrictions that remained in place. So the whole thought about going out if and well, if you're unwell, is silly to begin with. I mean, prior to the pandemic, we were told all the time, if you're not well, don't go to work, don't go to school. That makes a lot of sense to me. So a bit of a free-for-all just sounds counterintuitive. Now, whether or not people are going to be willing or wanting to mask up again, because you see it as much as I do, go to the grocery store. 12 months ago... Everybody. Now, very few, very few people wearing a mask inside a public space like a grocery store. So I don't even know if the general public is going to abide by much in the way of restrictions any longer anyway. I just don't know because pandemic fatigue is real. But your comment about repeated infection, it doesn't matter where you stand on COVID. It doesn't matter about your vaccination status. We know absolutely undeniably that repeated infection is bad for you in the long term, really bad for some people. So I don't know where we go from here because like Keith, I see you get absolutely roasted on social media for bringing it forward. And I think, you know, for me, I just take that opportunity. Now, some of that is echo chamber nonsense, but some of it is also the anecdotal uh, test about which way the wind is blowing in the general public and whether or not anyone, well, you'd need critical mass to abide by restrictions for them to actually have any positive impact on the community. So it feels like those days have come and gone. And I don't know where we go from here. Well, I mean, you know, if it was backed up by anything more than statements, I mean, the, the, the statements that are being made by our leader of health is, you know, they're, they're, they're not, you know, she has no, nothing to back it up. We're not giving, given any data. We're not given any research. So one of the, the, the most concerning statements from Friday was that long COVID isn't uh, as much of a concern with Omicron, which is completely false. So uh, stats can just put out, uh, the, the, you know, their findings and 10.5% of people who have gotten COVID since December have had symptoms for three months or more, which is considered long COVID. So to say that, to totally, you know, dismiss what is what what most, you know, medical researchers are are touting as the biggest concern with COVID. It's not the immediate deaths. And, you know, yes, that is terrible, obviously. But if you have a more delayed reaction that's causing, you know, 20, 30 different things to pop up in people in many different ways, you know, with long COVID and, uh, you know, 10.5%, that's a huge number. If you get 100,000 people infected this winter here in Newfoundland and you got 10.5% of them are going to have symptoms for three months or more, I mean, how, what, what kind of damage is that going to do to the workforce? And, you know, a lot of people are concerned with the continuity of in-class learning for kids and consistency and everything else like that. So 
how many teachers are going to miss time? How many kids are going to miss school? And like you said, with reinfections, what's becoming uh, alarmingly clear through studies is that the compounding damage of reinfections, even when mild, can be disastrous. So you may have no symptoms at all, and then you might have heart issues six months down the road. So American Heart Association has been sounding the alarm on this for like two years. Nobody's been listening, and now we're seeing a lot of people having heart events, you know, heart attacks, strokes in people that normally don't have them. So th- these are the type of things that are very, very concerning to you know the the rest of the medical uh, you know uh, field, except for our medical leaders who dismiss it with comments like you know it's not as prevalent in uh, Omicron when it clearly is 10.5 percent of anything you know that's a pretty that's a pretty big number when when you're talking uh, people are going to be sick for three months or more now the or more could be like a year so some people suffer from long COVID they've been suffering since 2020 right and. And the thing is, once you get reinfected, your chances of developing long COVID increase with each infection. So it's compounding damage to your immune system, to your body, and more viral load, etc. And every time you get infected, you're more prone to reinfection, which is clear in studies. And I, I'll send you all the info, Patty, if you want. I'll email it all I see you. it all the time. You can if you like, absolutely, Keith. Email yeah. address is easy one. Open line at It's uh, terrible. I appreciate right. the time this morning, Keith. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. You know, and I think that's where where we are now, is the appetite for restrictions is probably long gone. You know, backing it up with, you know, any assertion made by Dr. Fitzgerald or anyone else really does need to be uh, complemented with real-world data, studies and results and the like. And, you know, the the thought of long COVID, I guarantee you, I'm going to open up my Twitter here in a second. It's not going to be pretty. The conversation is almost becoming impossible, isn't it? Because any reference to long COVID, and there's a friend of mine who's in about two and a half months from now, still feels terrible. Um, and they're, but they're fully vaccinated. So, you know, the debate about all these things has been really hard to have fair, legit, mature conversations because we've just gone so far and people are so fed up that any reference to even long COVID, for, for starters, is all of a sudden folks who are have their mind made up, for instance, about vaccinations, say they attribute all that to the vaccine as opposed to the virus. So we're having a hard time getting down to, you know, public health conversations that are being met with anything but if you know, people's position, they're, they're, locked, they're, they're locked in here. That's it. People think what they think and they don't care what a doctor says, what a medical officer like Dr. Fitzgerald says or anybody else because they've got a position that they've adopted and that's it unwilling to budge or listen I mean, and you see it as much as i do especially if you're a social media user that's it the conversation is almost over and some of it is really unhelpful and farcical but that's where we are and the pandemic fatigue is absolutely real what's interesting about all this to me on top of a variety of things is when we look to the scientific community researchers, epidemiologists, virologists, and the like. It was one thing to listen to them. And you know who we probably should listen to a little bit more? Are the social scientists. They predicted exactly what the impact would be on individuals and communities and the country about the staunch position taken on the virus itself and its origin and or the vaccine or anything else. The social scientists knew exactly what path we were headed down. They couldn't have been more right. Still lots of controversy in the medical community, but not in the social science community. Anyway, wild. Let's take a break. When we come back, lots of time for you. Don't go away.
Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, yes, good morning. I'm phoning in. You had a caller earlier last week, and she was talking about um, the CPP death benefits, and she also said there was another application. Now, I was listening, and, but I couldn't get uh, what the name of it was, so I was wondering if she happened to be listening, if she could call in. It would be greatly appreciated. I was listening as attentively as I could, and I was I was still scratching my head about that second uh, package of benefit monies, and I spent an unfortunate amount of time looking at some CPP stuff since that call, including death benefits, survivor's pension, uh, benefits for children under 25, and all of that stuff. So I'm not entirely sure what the name of that is, but if that lady is listening this morning, please do reiterate, because you're not the first person to ask me about that second pot of money she was referring to, so I'd, I think it'd be helpful if we, she reminded us once again and gave us what might be the official title. Yes, because I also did the search and same thing as you, and I couldn't find nothing. Yeah. Just the basic, you know. But anyway, yeah, just a quick call this morning. That's what I was phoning about. Let me see if I can figure it out, and hopefully she is listening. She can just send me an email, or she can call and reiterate exactly what she was talking about, because I thought I knew, but then when I tried to find the pot of money and the title of it, I couldn't find it. And I even looked, I even listened to your nightline to see if I could catch it then. And darn, I, never, I still didn't catch it. Okay. Let me see what we can do because uh, you're not the first person to ask. Okay, then. Thank you very much. You Thank have a you, good ma'am. Day. You too. Stay safe. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, so the the death benefit, of course, is a – there's a couple of eligibility things that people need to understand, but they're not that tricky. You have to uh, – the deceased had to be contributing to the CPP for at least one-third of the calendar year, uh, but no less than three calendar years and or ten calendar years. There's even – Definitions as uh, the deceased contributor lived outside the country. It is indeed a one-time payment of $2,500 coming from CPP. So, yes, if that woman is listening, she could help us fill in those blanks. It'd be great. Let's go to line number three. Russell, you're on the air. Yes, uh, Patty. um, We're senior citizens, wife and I. We have a, a... a fridge to leak from it, but I get someone to take that away for us. And also, I've got a hole in the ceiling downstairs, a small hole to fix that, a bit of plastering. Uh, if there's a handyman available, you can, they, can, they can reach me by 753-2186. Give us that number again. We're just a little bit slower, Russell. Are you ready to go? Can you give me the number one more time? I couldn't grab my pen quick enough. Seven five three uh-huh. twenty one eighty six. Yeah, you needed a handyman actually. How much work is there to be done? Not not much at all. It's only a small hole. Um, a little bit of pl- I got the plaster. I got the tape. I got everything there. Uh, just to, to put it on it, fix it. Okay, so if anyone has the time and the inclination uh, and would like to help Russell repair that small hole, 753-2186. For any of you handymen or contractors or someone who just wants to do a good turn and you know what you're doing, we'll see what we can do for you, Russell. Okay, buddy. I appreciate the time. Bye. Good luck. Bye-bye. Uh, I just got a text from a pal, uh, one of the listeners, that he thinks the reference, uh, the lady was calling about the uh, death benefit and what the second pot of money is. 
this particular listener thinks it was the caregiver benefit. So there's a bunch of issues inside of that. That's a bit of a tangle, but if you want to talk about the Canada Caregiver Credit and or the benefit, the CRCB, we can do that as well here this morning. Uh, you know, and as usual, you know, not every issue under the sun makes it into the opener of a show, but that doesn't mean I'm not interested in it. It's just sometimes it's uh, time constraints or we try to figure out what might be of most interest to you. But there was a story, and we do know that people find different ways and different outlets to get their news, right? What's become extremely popular is Google, of course, and Facebook. Now, based on someone, this is the reference to Bill C-18, is the federal government is threatening, well, not threatening, they're going to ensure that some of the ad revenue that is absolutely hogged by Facebook and Google makes its way back to the news publishers themselves. So we know full well it's easy enough to find a news article and just flick it around, but when you have the, the reach that Facebook has then they should indeed be paying the publishers for using their stories on their feed. Why not? It only makes sense. I mean, just look at the amount of money they're raking in, and as opposed to the federal government giving some financial support to small or medium uh, uh, news outlets, which has made a bad situation worse, in my opinion, yeah, let's get it from the Facebooks of the world. So as a result of some of this, Facebook is, guess what? They're threatening to t uh, keep news content off their feed in Canada. <sighs> Facebook can be very helpful in sharing pictures and thoughts and recipes and ideas and keeping up with your buddies who live elsewhere, but it's not exactly helping anything or anyone. So Facebook pulled this same stunt in Australia. The Aussies thought that they were going to keep some of their uh, ad revenues coming to publishers as opposed to being hogged by the Facebooks of the world. And so Facebook did exactly that, or Meta, or whatever they'd like to call themselves these days. But then a week later, they put the news back on. So... For starters, Facebook is a dubious place to get news, in my personal opinion. But just imagine, they think that that's a threat? <laughs> I'm not so sure anybody could care. If you have Facebook, you have the opportunity to get your news in a hundred million places. So anyway, someone asked why I didn't bring it up. I think it's an important story. And yes, the publishers of the content should be getting paid especially by organizations like Facebook. See, now a couple of emails caught my eye as they were flowing in, referring to the benefit packages. Okay. Okay, so this lady says it was a benefit notice a child rearing provision and or a caregiver benefit, which is what we mentioned. I'll make sure we get confirmation of it. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, lots of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Yet another issue that didn't make it to the top of the show. And this one has an absolute... Uh, concern or consideration regarding this province as well. The story comes from Nova Scotia, but absolutely has implications here. And you know, we talk about conflict, and whether it be the Premier's relationship with John Risley and or Brendan Paddock, of course, and they're friends. The, the issue regarding Mr. Paddock was he was on the committee to review the implications of 2041. And what exactly happens when the contract at the Upper Churchill expires? Many people think it's our panacea. It's going to be the end of all our worries, when I'm not so sure it is. So I asked the Premier about that on the program, and then there was, you know, conversation about monitoring uh, conflicts. Eventually, Mr. Paddock is not a part of that committee any longer. So 2041... You know, the relationship between Hydro-Quebec, this province, hydroelectricity being generated at the Upper Churchill, the Romaine River, wherever, it's all of this stuff that was regarding the Atlantic Loop. 
We're not really sure exactly what it means. You know, it was and it felt like a branding exercise. And when I would say that, liberals would be quite cross with me. But no one's able to give me much in the way of details about how it looks, how it works. It's fine to say this is an opportunity to get uh, Nova Scotia offer their reliance on coal-fired generation and or the opportunity to open up markets in the northeast of the United States. All important in concept, but how it works is going to be, you know, the devil's in the details. Like, is it just another opportunity for Hydro-Quebec to be in charge of everything? And if so, that's not great for us. But Amera, Nova Scotia Power, they have been working on the Atlantic Loop, but now there's a bit of a standoff between Amera and the Nova Scotia government. And, of course, the Atlantic Loop would have included us, so it does have an implication here. The Premier Houston-led government in Nova Scotia has, through legislation, imposed a 1.8% cap on electricity rates increases for the next two years. So that money's got to be spent on operations and maintenance. They've also put a cap on the return on investment at Amera, and they capped it at 9.25%. Amera was looking for 13.7%. So because of this standoff, and because of the obvious reduction in revenue coming in to Amera, even though Nova Scotia Power only represents about 15% of Amera's annual revenues, because of it, their CEO, uh, his name is Scott, Scott Balfour, he said that they're going to stop, pause their work on the Atlantic Loop. Of course, this will be the thrust and parry of negotiating in public. It can indeed really be beneficial to the province of Nova Scotia for all of this transmission to be built because they still generate upwards of 50% of their electricity via coal fire generation. So now that those caps have been put in place for increases in rates and guaranteed rate of return for the company, the company says, oh, well, that might have been good for Nova Scotia, but we're not going to do it. Here's a call from Mr. Balfour. That's one of the first projects that we've, been, that we've said to the team, you know, we have to push pause on for now. There isn't enough money in order to continue to pursue that, let alone the ability for us to go to the investment community and say, you know, please invest more money in Nova Scotia in order to enable that kind of project of that kind of scale. And all of those references to that project is indeed the Atlantic Loop. It would have been nice. Now, remember, this was an announcement came from the federal government. It wasn't Nova Scotia, and it wasn't us, and it wasn't Quebec. This was a federal government initiative. And the minister responsible at the time, Dominic LeBlanc, talked about it and how important it was. But when the push arrived at shove, the minister said that the federal government has not done its due diligence enough to the point where they're willing to put money in. Not willing to go any further with the billions of dollars it's going to take. It's a nation-building exercise. It has huge implications for the provision of power, the opening up markets for power coming from the upper Churchill and or Hydro-Quebec assets. But so the government announced it, too much fanfare. And, of course, then when more questions were being asked and where do we go from here, then all of a sudden they haven't done the required due diligence to see whether or not the federal government should be involved. Look, they've kind of said the quiet parts out loud several times here regarding hydroelectricity. The fact that there's been three federal loan guarantees associated with Muskrat Falls was absolutely under the guise of nation building and an opportunity for Nova Scotia to reduce its reliance on coal-fired generation, right? Three different loan guarantees from two different governments. The first one, $5 billion, came from the Harper Conservatives, and then the two, uh, con uh, the two subsequent loan guarantees coming from the Trudeau Liberals. So which is it? And is there an opportunity for us 
involving the Atlantic Loop. We were told in no uncertain terms there is, but not so sure that we're going to get any further than this. And of course, this standoff in Nova Scotia absolutely does have an impact on any future plans in this province. And I'm really wanting to know what the evaluation of 2041 really looks like. Because, you know, the Upper Churchill, the magnitude of that hydroelectric dam and megawattage that could be pumped out makes Muskrat look really, really small. Like, it's what, 5,000 megawatts or something at the Upper Churchill? Even Gull Island's about 2225 megawatts. Maximum output, even though we'll never arrive or reach this, is 824 at Muskrat. So, you know, Atlantic Loop, Gull Island, 2041, they're all wrapped up together. They're not all the same thing, but the overlap is distinct. And so we need to know exactly where that's going to go. If you want to take that on, we can do it. And again, you hear some ads here on the program and on the station regarding the pending carbon tax issue. And someone says, you know, I'm a bootlicker or something for bringing out some facts. No, we just try to bring some facts to conversations so that we can have discussions surrounding said facts. Yes, it is going to be critically important for the province to be able to achieve some sort of negotiated position with the federal government to keep home heating fuels exempt from the carbon tax. We know it to be true. It does have an impact here. Just think about it. For folks who are having a hard time making ends meet and paying their home heating bills 12 months ago, well, any further increase just makes it that much more difficult. And so people are right when they say we can indeed make adjustments to our behavior regarding gasoline usage and how far we drive or what we drive or carpooling or riding a bike more or maybe taking the odd spin on the bus, whatever. People have opportunities to adjust their behavior, but not when it comes to heating your home. You just don't. You know, going cold or being cold is not really an option. It's not a behavioral issue. And so if we had people who were making those decisions between filling their prescriptions or eating or heating the home, then this is going to be important. But the reality of the conversation in Ottawa, and this is not bootlicking, facts are, don't really care about partisan leanings, Any, if, even if there is an increase in the carbon tax this go-around, it doesn't come into effect till April. That's important to put on the table because I can just tell you from experience that when people hear tripling, then they think it's a triple that happens this winter while they're already worried, you know? And not everyone has the capacity to take any of these subsidies or rebates to move from oil to electricity. It's not the reality for so many people in this province. So when they hear these things, they of course get stressed out. It doesn't come into effect if it passes until April. And the concept of tripling is over the course of eight years, not just this winter, because neither one of those are true. It doesn't triple this winter. It triples over eight years. It doesn't have any application to this winter because it wouldn't come into effect till April. So I only offer that, especially to folks who are really stressed out when they hear the whole bit about tripling this winter. It's not really what's being discussed. It's what's being tabled in Ottawa. So just for the conversation regarding exactly what's being discussed, I'll put that out there for your consideration. Let's see what's happening on the Twitter. Jim says, have you heard anything about this? The Prime Minister's office press release on Friday mistakenly claimed the handgun ban was immediate. Safety Canada acknowledged a proper legal notice of cabinet orders have not been served and will not take effect until November 9th at the earliest. Inside the story itself, it absolutely makes reference to the pending legislation that's still required. And it says, accompanying legislative measures that would reinforce the freeze have yet to be approved by Parliament. 
the ban and the uh, the ban on importation, selling or transferring handguns came into effect on Friday, but does, Jim's absolutely right, there's additional legislative measures to enforce it. So the government can say it's in effect, but the ability to enforce it absolutely does require amended legislation to be brought to the floor of the House of Commons, and then, of course, like all legislation, would have to make its way through the Senate as well before royal assent becoming law on the book so it can be enforced. Jim is right. On the money there, okay, our Twitter, or pardon me, our Twitter, or VOCM OpenLine, you know too. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. OCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Christy. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Fine today. Thanks. How about you? All right. Um, I'm just calling because for the past 99 weeks, um, I have been standing outside once a week with a sign that says long-term mental health care needs to be more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, with some other friends as well. They've uh, joined me over the last little while. And to... Um, I guess not celebrate, but for week 100, we wanted to do something tangible. So we've been doing a series of things to raise money for the Jacob Pettister Memorial Foundation, who offers um, therapy and uh, uh, most recently a support group for people ages 12 to 35. Um, The support group is 12 to 17. But we have done a number of things and i just would absolutely love it if some people the public felt like they could give to it i know people have been asked to give a lot lately but i really believe this is a good cause so i was just hoping i could plug a couple things that we're doing oh sure go right ahead um well the first thing actually sold out is trivia and i want to give a huge shout out to you patty for hosting one of those weeks I appreciate it so much. We raised over $1,600 through that. Happy and, to do it. Well, really appreciate it. Uh, the second thing we're doing is we have a fundraiser on Canada Helps, which if people want to donate and get an income tax receipt, that's the best way to do it. And then the third thing is we've partnered with a local clothing company called Display Rules, and we um, have some shirts for sale. One is about don't be afraid to ask for help, but there's also some mugs that say long-term mental health care need to be more accessible. And if people are finding this like a lot of information, they can go to mylongtermcorner.com slash week100, and it explains what we stand for, why we're raising the money, and any other questions they might have. The Jacob Pottister Memorial Foundation is a really terrific support group. It got to, it got to the point where they had to stop taking names for their wait list. They were just so overwhelmed with people needing the help outside of what I'll call the traditional mental health system and going to, whether it be Wellness Together that you and I talk about all the time or the Jacob Pottister Memorial Foundation. So that's how things have snowballed in the last number of years. If it wasn't for some of these organizations outside the government offerings, what would we even do? So yes, people have been asked to give a lot in the recent past, but some of these groups, if they don't get the funding to keep the door open, to expand their offerings, we're going to find ourselves, and you know, I hate to put it down to dollars and cents, but we're going to find ourselves at a much more difficult dollars and cents position if these groups are unable to provide the supports that they do. Just for the broad stroke question, Christy, when you are saying access to long-term mental health support and and 
counseling or whatever. And I guess that's where I'm going with the question is exactly what are you talking about? Because people will see the sign. They'll understand the plea, but maybe not the details about how we get to a better place. For me, it's, you know, there are people who struggle with their mental wellness and people with their mental illness. So people who are struggling with their mental wellness, they might find um, the program like Doorways really helpful because they can go in, they can talk, and it helps them feel better. But there's people with um, illness, and also I don't think everyone likes to call like ADHD an illness, but um, neurodivergent who need longer term care, who need to be more closely monitored. And I I'm, I'm most commonly refer to myself because I understand my own situation best, but I have bipolar disorder, um, among other things that I'm currently in the middle of getting help for. And I require therapy regularly, every two weeks. I have to get blood work done um, to monitor my lithium. I have to see a psychiatrist to check in on me. All of that is um, very important continuity of care, and not everyone gets that. And, you know, they might not be able to afford therapy. They might be on a wait list for a psychiatrist. And I think when we say that, we're saying, you know, people who need help for the long term, it's less accessible to them. We saw with the mass exodus of psychologists. Well, do you know how many people need psychologists, especially in the public health system, not privately, because we have to pay for that. And you know, things to make it accessible is, are they providing a good workplace for the healthcare workers who help us? Because if it's not a good workplace for them, it impacts the patients. There's so many moving factors to it. And I think it evolves as well because people's uh, people's needs change. Does that make sense? Am I answering the question? Yes, I think you are. And I, what I was, all I was trying to do was just get an explanation mm-hmm. about, you know, because we talk about improvements in the system all the time, and we should be talking about mental health as well as physical health in the exact same breath all the time because they are the exact same thing, and the level of concern is very real. Just trying to give people an understanding about exactly what you're hoping for, because if people not in their own family or social circles are not dealing with the need for longer term access to help or to care they might not meet know exactly what we're trying to achieve and the, the conversation we're trying to have that's the only reason i ask yeah i know and that totally makes sense because i want to be concise but i guess it's a moving thing but i'm not trying to skirt around the issue as well right it's just it's different for everyone i mean in my own case mm-hmm. believe me i would love to not have to pay for my own therapy and i know there's a lot of people who can't even afford to do that and so I would like it to be free for them people with ADHD whatever help they need and um, getting an assessment can be very costly I mean I'm going through that with someone in my life right now and you know I was at the ADHD I believe you're talking to Dr. Hubbard about it I was there with someone I know and the room was completely full people it seemed like being in that crowd that people were craving more resources more information uh, because that's what they need and i mean kudos for them for pulling it off but it's a number of things for me it's therapy for someone it might be constant monitoring of medication all of it i just want people to feel safe and like they can access it easily A hundred percent. I mean, the effort that you've put into your advocacy, I think, is making a difference. Uh, I hope you know that. And the folks who have, you know, learned and understood more and more about mental wellness, mental illness, 
because of the work you're doing, because of the conversations you're willing to have in public, is absolutely helping. It was a good piece in the paper over the weekend, and I guarantee you that made a difference to some people who were reading it and trying to have a better understanding, because for too long, the lack of understanding came from the lack of conversation, because it was so taboo that we weren't talking about it. And as a result, people had to experience it for themselves firsthand or a member of their family to even know what is going on, to even have the base understanding of the mental health system that is obviously not doing what it's intended to do. So the fact that we're talking about things honestly and openly is absolutely helping. You know, whether it be on the area of stigma, whether it be about understanding mental illness, whether it be about understanding long-term care and the need for, these things will make a difference. Now, it's not going to be flip a switch and things are rosy and everything's perfect overnight, but the more and more people understand, the more and more people will put it farther up their priority list for talking with politicians, for talking about policy, for demanding better. Absolutely. And I think we can do things in our own lives to make it more accessible to the people that we love as well. You know, back, you know, I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly learning that I've made mistakes and know better. You know, when I was first um, went to see the doctor about having suicidal thoughts, I didn't understand it. And it took me reading about it and talking about it to understand what had been happening to me since I was 10 years old. And if people make the effort to have these conversations so people feel safer accessing help and not waiting and it being less scary you know we can all play a part in it we can all play a part in making it accessible for people and i think that we've come a long way in talking but not about enough things and that's why you know i think what's the right way to say this sometimes baby steps lead to the gigantic leaps because if we're not having the talking part, the conversation at this stage, we're never going to advance the conversation to the point where you'd like it to be, where I'd like it to be, where one in five Canadians and their family and friends need it to be. So this is why it's important stuff, Christy, and you're the backbone of a lot of these conversations here in the province. So good on you for doing what you're doing. Give the folks the details one more time, the touchstone for get more information about what you're doing for the 100th week. If uh, they want to read anything about it, all the links are there. It's my long-term corner uh, slash week 100. I will say that there's been others who have joined with me, and they have been an incredible support, and you can read about them and their favorite resources there as well. So I want to give them a huge shout-out. They've kept me going. (laughs) Appreciate the time this morning, Christy. See you again soon. Thank you so much, Patty. Is it okay if I call next week to talk about how much we raised? Absolutely. Um, Feel free. Okay. And say some thank yous to everyone. So thank you very much, Patty. Sounds great. Talk to you soon. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. You know, hopefully people, whether it be on that issue or anything else, if you're out there and you're consistent and your stick to is on display because you're trying to make positive change about whatever it is, good on you. Because it wasn't that long ago that, you know, whether it be certainly regarding mental health, mental health, mental illness in particular, we just didn't talk about it enough. And consequently, we didn't keep up with what's happening. We didn't ensure that the same approach we were taking to hip and knee replacements was given to long-term, uh, long-term mental health care and supports. So, you know, Christy and many, many others out there are doing important heavy lifting when it comes to these topics. And we can certainly tackle that or anything else right after this break. Today's a good day to get on the show. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. 
Welcome back to the program. And, you know, back to the more conversation regarding health. That's the way I'll put it. You know, I'm still looking for, whether it be from opposition parties and or you as the listener, the citizen, the taxpayer, about the issues we're having inside of healthcare, we do know once you get in the system, by and large, you're dealing with a dedicated, compassionate professional. But even in the world of recruiting and retaining doctors or any healthcare worker, you know, when you read stories about folks say, well, if you just pay them, they'll come. But it just doesn't seem to be that simple. It certainly hasn't proven to be that simple. And there's a story I read this morning about a nurse. She's originally from Happy Valley Goose Bay. She was working as a registered nurse in this province for 23 years and in 2019 left for Nova Scotia. She's talking about the whole business about work-life balance. You know, it used to be we lived to work. And now people's tune are changing on that. I have some people refer to it as we're becoming lazy. I don't think it's that. Because it's hard to have any sort of positive place to decompress and be with your friends and be with your family and be ready to go to work as hard as we need people to work, especially inside of healthcare. And she calls it a casualty of the system. She's even talking about the incentives that are being put forward to see nurses, healthcare professionals, return to the province to work. You see the pot of money that they put out there. So they're called a return, return in service agreement. It was different from profession to profession, but eligible physicians were offered $100,000 for a five-year agreement. Primary care paramedics and registered nurses were offered $50,000 for a three-year return to service agreement. And that's if you had connection in the past with the province from here, did your schooling here. Then there was less money offered for those who were not a related to the province, you know, whether it be as training, their education, and or their birthplace, but big money being dangled out. It would be helpful to know just what's happening there. Like, have we seen someone make a decision that, okay, that's enough for me. $100,000 is a big whopping sum of money to come to work for five years, but for some, and including this nurse, the incentives simply aren't enough. She's able to have a better life, quality of life, as she even goes on to say. She might be making less money where she is in Nova Scotia, but for many, it's obviously not the be-all and end-all. If it was, we wouldn't have the problems. So as much as we look to government to do what's required, there's been a lot of programs and policies and incentives put in place to see what we can do for adding to the staff, whether it be for a doctor, registered nurse, LPN, nurse practitioner, social worker, whatever. But I'm not so sure how many people are taking the government up on their offerings. And so if that's not enough, where do you go? If you hear the stories of especially the numbers of uh, registered nurses who remain on the casual list, and there's been some pretty big offerings given to them, retention bonuses, $3,000, child care options, mental health supports, all of these types of things, and the casuals aren't willing to take it. They see how the permanent full-time nurses have it with their scheduling and mandated overtime, the inability to even catch your breath sometimes. And for a lot of folks, regardless of how you like to characterize they're wanting to not be in that position, they're not taking it. So even if someone wants to label someone lazy or unprofessional or uncaring, it doesn't matter what you think it is. The reality is it's not working the way it's supposed to. So that's where we have to get involved in better understanding of exactly why more money is not working for so many. Then we have like the uh, annual general meeting for Eastern Health and their interim CEO 
in so many words, said the regional health authorities kind of caught off guard with this newfound attention to work-life balance. What, how can that be the case? I mean, we've been talking about these things for years. And if we're familiar enough with it on this show, certainly they need to be familiar with it inside the senior ranks of Eastern Health. And we can only say Eastern Health in this one because it was the Eastern Health AGM. So I'd be really curious to understand exactly what we can do. Because if people are unwilling to take jobs with some pretty significant pay bumps involved, then there's obviously a much bigger, broader, and probably a more complicated issue to see if we can get where we need to be as a province. Anyway, let's keep going to line number one. Mark, you're on the air. Thank you. Yes. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I'm not bad. It's uh, one talking about the Pfizer, where the uh, dropped... Uh, said uh, Friday that the uh, vaccines didn't work. That's not what they said. It's all they said, yeah. No, but, but that's not what they said. Honestly, they said that the vaccines didn't work. And they they are uh, going to start giving the vaccines to the kids. But Pfizer doesn't determine what age group gets approval. Organizations like Health Canada and the CDC, they make those determinations, not Pfizer. Well, Pfizer said that the, the drug didn't work. But that's not what they said, though. What did he say? Well, the big issue that's uh, is bombing around here, when I'm kind of surprised some of these things are all of a sudden revelations that people latch onto, is the amount of study on person-to-person transmission before it was given emergency authorization at the beginning. And I'm not so sure how that is the big news of the day all of a sudden when no one said it was 100%. Well, certainly for me, uh, and I'm not a doctor, so I don't pretend to uh, know everything about mRNA vaccines, but that's the big story that's going around. Not that Pfizer said it doesn't work. Here's what I look to, it, just in this province, for instance. We have, and people have their own position on the vaccine. That's fine. The definition hasn't changed. Fully vaccinated still just remains two shots in the primary series. Mandates have gone away, but still people are really uh, into the vaccine conversation. In this province, I think the death toll since March of 2020, COVID-related deaths, is 253 people, I think. We have on the median or average age, the oldest province in the country. We had huge uptake on the primary series of the vaccine and a big uptake on the third booster shot. And I'm not going to say only 253 people died, but 253 people died in the oldest province in the country that leads the league in most of the core morbidities that puts you at at heightened risk with COVID for serious illness, hospitalization or death. But that's where we are. That to me says quite clearly that the vaccine is working. Now, no argument. The protection that it affords you wanes over time. Absolutely, we understand it to be true. It's 100%. As someone who had the third shot, I wish it lasts forever, but it doesn't. But 253 people dead in the oldest province in the country with all of those underlying health conditions that make it more worrisome for folks. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. There are more people ending up with the COVID now than since they got the vaccine than they did before. Yeah, I think some of that is based on math, though, too. If the, like in this province, I don't know what the number is now, the uptake on the third shot, but in the older sect, it's in and around 90%. And so if people aren't 
the more people get vaccinated, the more likelihood that people who are vaccinated get the, the get the virus. Because you are absolutely, people do know, vaccinated folks can get it. Vaccinated, vaccinated Canadians can transmit it to others. The national uptake on the primary series was around 80%, and the third shot's around 52%, as I think the last number I saw. So you can get it, and you can spread it, but the numbers of people that end up with serious illness are vastly reduced when fully vaccinated. Th- those are just the numbers that we see. I mean, it's not because I say so, because they've been compiled almost everywhere you look. But the, what the go-to for me is 253 people dead in this province since March 2020 with a huge uptake on vaccination, old and unwell, then, I don't know, it's, it's hard to make an argument where it hasn't worked. Just for me. Yeah, but well, also, I just want to say that, uh, did you, did you, uh, that there's a new one right now for the, the, the respiratory system down in the States. I'm sorry, what was that part? There's a virus on the world down in the States uh, and making kids sick with the respiratory system. Have no that idea. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I try to read as much as I can about that, yeah. but I'm not 100% sure exactly what you're referring to. Okay, yeah. But you can, you can try again, and if I can get it, I'll be happy to talk about it if you like. Okay, thanks. Appreciate the time, Mark. You take good care of yourself. Yeah, yeah bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, so again, so inevitably when we talk about vaccines, it's just, right, there's way it goes. This particular emailer says it's big news because they lied. The emergency authorization tag, I thought it was pretty easily understood, you know, because remember, here's some of the base timeline about the vaccination conversation. There was lots of credit given to the former president with Project Warp Speed, even though that didn't result in any mRNA vaccines. But there was international cooperation and in real massive increase in funding for vac- vaccines to be developed. The emergency authorization. Remember when that's the, that was the big concern. Even though there were so many different uh, times we could point to emergency authorization for different ones. MERS, SARS, uh, Ebola. These all had vaccines come out that were only tagged emergency authorization until they went through required clinical trials. And then remember, it's like in this country we'll say, so the liberals were in power. And the conservatives would say quite clearly and all the time and quite loudly is that the government is going to fail us because they're so slow in getting vaccines. Then it went to we got too many. Then it went to we paid too much. Then it went to they don't work. When, you know, it, a lot of this has been about political convenience as opposed to what's actually happening. So we didn't do it fast enough. Then we did it too fast and we spent too much and we wasted our time and they don't work. And, you know, all of those types of things have led to really very difficult conversations regarding vaccination. I used to think that nothing would outpace Muskrat Falls as the most frustrating issue that I've ever had to deal with, but the vaccines by far and away have obliterated anything to do with hydro, the Churchill River or Muskrat Falls. But those are the some of the timeline issues. Once again, I think it's a reference to uh, a reference I made earlier about, you know, the doctors, the scientific community, the social scientists, they told us how this was going to play out, right? And they were right at every turn. Let's take a break. When we come back, the topic, up to you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Paul, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. I'm going to change the subject this morning. Sure. Talk about country music, my buddy. Okay. I know recently we just lost uh, Loretta Lane. 
Um, I think she was well into her 90s, Patty, if I'm not mistaken. Patty, country music today, now I know I'm almost 60 years old, but would you not agree it's, it's nowhere near what it used to be? Uh, they almost tend to call it country rock now, Patty. Uh, you, when you think of country music, Patty, to me, you look at the old timers, uh, Patty, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, uh, Merle Haggard. That's country music to me, Patty. It's just not the same anymore. I can't even listen to the new country music today, Patty. Now, I, I, back in the 80s, I had the opportunity to uh, see Waylon Jennings and George Jones down at the old Memorial Stadium. Um, but today, Patty, uh, the newer ones that are coming around now, I wouldn't spend five cents on them, Patty. This is, maybe I'm just getting old, Patty. But I think most of your listeners would probably agree that no, there's nothing like old-time uh, country music, Patty. Yeah, they, yeah, listen, fair ball. I mean, music is subjective, right? When we were growing up, same thing, you know, whether it be Hank Williams or Hank Snow or Conway Twitty and, the, and some of the big three that the big guys you mentioned, Merle Haggard of the world, and yes, Loretta Lynn. Loretta Lynn is the most recognized female country singer in history when it comes to awards, you know. She was the only female, I'm trying to remember some of the details I heard last week, and she was 90 when she passed. She had 24 number ones. She was the first female artist of the decade in the 1970s. So her impact, of course, is huge. Many people will simply remember her for Cold Miner's Daughter, but she was way bigger than that to mean 24 number ones. Uh, don't come home a-drinking with loving <laughs> on your mind. Her sister, correct me if I'm wrong, was uh, uh, Crystal Gale. Or am I imagining that? I don't know if that's true or not. I heard that years ago. Um, why the name changed, I don't know. But oh, wait, Gale no. Yes, Christopher Gale is absolutely your sister. Yes. Uh, she is? Yes. Okay, but uh, Crystal Gale is definitely one of my favorites. And she's got to be up there, too, now, Patty, in age. But she was, you know, well, I mean, of course, she was a beautiful lady anyway, but she had a great voice. And <clears throat> she was in Hamilton back in the 80s. And, uh, you know, you just don't forget stuff like that. You know, it's just not the same, Patty. You remember back... This is probably even before your time, but Patty, one time they actually called it country and western music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're taking the western out. Now it's just country music. Country music, Patty, that could be, I could go out the highway somewhere and play music out in the country. You know, but I guess they, they've taken the Western away. I guess uh, even today, it's just not the same thing, Patty. It's just not the same thing. There's there's some traditional country music, uh, country Western music out there, but you know when the popularity of people like Garth Brooks and Shania Twain, it really did change the next wave of country music. And you know whether it be country rock or rockabilly or whatever, however people label it, it's absolutely different from what was gracing the stage of the Grand Ole Opry in the 1970s. That's true. You're 100 percent right. It's still my favorite. I'll, I'll well, even when Elvis started, Patty, look what they were saying about him. And, and now look what's on stage now, Patty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, times change, I know, right? Yeah. And to each their own. But I just thought I'd throw that in this morning. But uh, it's sad to see the old ones going. Uh, but they're, they're, I think it was Saturday night, Patty, VOWR had a special on about uh, Merle Haggard. Okay. And I never really got into Merle Haggard, you know, unfortunately, because uh, <clears throat> I have to listen to the mu- some of the music. I mean, he had quite an upbringing, you know, he... He uh, wasn't exactly born into a wealthy family, Patty, and he uh, and uh, he spent some time in prison. I believe it was uh, was it San Quentin, I believe, and it was the prison that Johnny Cash had performed in. Yeah, well, that's San Quentin then. And Matt, Merle Pager had had been there when Johnny was there, and that's what really got Merle going when he experienced Johnny Cash, you know. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's just not the same thing anymore, Patty. I still got the old records here and cassette tapes, and that's what I'll keep on playing and. Like I say, the newer ones, no, I don't know, unless something really special comes by, you know, 
But it's just not the same anymore, Petty. Yeah, and the, well, I mean, that group, you know, that collection of country artists, the Waylon Jennings, Merle Haggard, Johnny Cash, and the other one that I used to love growing up as well, because we, music was part of our life, it was Chris Christopherson, to be honest oh, yeah. with you. I mean, the little silver-tongued devil, good for what ails you. <laughs> Okay, Barry. Good talking to you. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate Thanks, the time. Okay, bye bye. Yeah, country music has absolutely changed. Well, as I guess so has many of the genres of music. Some remain consistent, like classical music is classical music, jazz is jazz. Now there's some there's some change into what constitutes what do they call that freestyle in the jazz world? Maybe it was always part of it. I should ask Pat Boyle because he's the expert on that front. But you can you know clearly tell there's a long way between the Wabash Cannonball. Right, and some of the new country hits of the day. It, was I fair enough in saying that maybe a lot of this changed with uh, Garth Brooks and Shania Twain and Alan Jackson and all those kinds of people? Anyway, let's keep going. Line number three, Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How you doing? I was just gentlemen talking about country music before I'm going to say what I'm going to say. I remember um, Jim Reeves. And I do great Jim Reeves. Anyway, what I was going to talk about was what's been passed off on TSN as playoff baseball. Now, I know that a lot of fans out there are Toronto Blue Jay fans, and they were really upset a couple of weeks ago when Toronto Blue an 8 1 lead to Seattle and lost that tournament. But you know, Patty, when I look at the, and I don't look at a lot of baseball in the playoffs. They're no better than the Toronto Blue Jays. That guy last night, or Harvish or Darvish or whatever his name is for, San Diego, you know, he was walking guys who were making all sorts of mishaps and what have you. I just I just don't, don't respect what's been passed off as Major League Baseball. Well, they're good teams. Why the, you know, it's a little bit of a surprising matchup for the World Series with Houston and Philadelphia. But... The Jays, I think, were as good as many of the teams, but where they were really weak, and I think that's how we found out the hard way, is out comes Gausman, in goes Meza, and all of a sudden 8-1 disappears very quickly. Even when okay. I was watching the, the Seattle series, I mean, what if they have an 18-inning game, one nothing? Where the Jays were really woefully inadequate was in that long middle relief. You know, Pop and Mays and some of the guys, not bad, but just look at the guys that were able to go out time after time for, yeah. whether it be Philly or Seattle or Houston. I mean, my God, they're as thick as thieves. Now, another point I'd like to point out to you. Uh, I, when I get up in the morning, I get up about 7.30, and I turn on morning show, which is on uh, MSNBC, and Joe Scarrow is a former uh, Republican. And ever since the baseball uh, playoffs started, they're always harping on uh, the cheaters. They call the Houston uh, Astros the cheaters because of a couple of years ago. I'm, I'm starting to wonder, are Houston not to get the name of the, of the Chicago White Sox of 1919? Is that how we're going to remember Houston as a bunch of cheaters. Well, I think there are two different conversations. I mean, Shoeless Joe Jackson and the Black Sox actually fixing the World Series is different than the Astros, who were using cameras and stuff to steal signs. Yeah. They were cheating on the other way. The Black Sox, they cheated by throwing the series. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think, I mean, we're, we're ahead in te technology now. I, I, I don't follow baseball that much. I'm a Chicago Blackhawk fan. And, like, 
Uh, even even the announcers on the on the uh, on the playoffs, they're not honest. You know, they're just not honest. I don't think any of these teams are any better than Toronto. Okay, yesterday that guy Harper hit himself a home run, and um, we haven't seen any great pitching. We've seen good pitching. Uh, the Darvish or Harvish, whoever started for San Diego yesterday, what he walked with the first ten batters. You know, it's just it's just not the same. You know, uh, I, I I'd like to know how many people are watching the game because I don't think the numbers are that high. So I just thought I'd phone in and bitch and complain about that this morning. <laughs> <laughs> and you're welcome to do exactly that, Brian. Appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Pat. You're welcome. Take good care. Bye. All right. Bye bye. Yeah, I mean, baseball is on everyone's bag. Uh, I really personally, in, I really enjoy baseball personally, and I will watch the World Series. Why not? A bit of a surprising matchup, I think. If you had to see how many people had Houston-Philly as the matchup, I think it would be pretty small numbers that made that particular pick. I mean, it's really unbelievable how quiet the Yankees went and unceremoniously like got dismissed. And anyway, uh, like I mentioned off the top of the show, it is hilarious, and there's all kinds of new stories out there about Brendan Brothers, fine fella, smart guy, uh, one of the three founders of Verifin. It was in New York at Yankee Stadium for game number three, and boy, I tell you what, if you can find a picture of Mr. Brothers and a picture of Babe Ruth, there is an uncanny resemblance. It really is. I didn't realize that prior, you know, just uh, seeing Brendan Brothers at an event or something. It never struck me. But now that people have put them side by side, it's really something else. So when I first saw the story, I'm like, man, I recognize that guy. And then Dave sent me a text saying it was Brendan Brothers, and it is Brendan Brothers and the babe. One and the same. Let's take a break. When we come back, Gordon's there in the queue to talk about what? We'll find out. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Gordon. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, sir. Morning to you. Yeah, I like to talk about uh, Mossrat Falls. Okay. Uh, the, the problem they're having right now is the software. It's one of the problems. One of the problems, yeah. So, and the Upper Churchill, is there any um, software using that project? Well, Hydro-Quebec does use uh, software for transmission. We didn't uh, choose to buy one off the off the shelf. We had this new approach with uh, General Electric that obviously is not working. But the lines from the Upper Churchill to Muskrat don't require this type of software because they chose to go with a particular approach, AC to DC, as opposed to go one way the entire length of the 1,100 kilometers of transmission because of power loss. So that's my basic understanding of it, Gordon. Yeah, well, I'm thinking they should find out what uh, software is used on that project and probably use the same on the Mushroom Falls because that has proved to be working, it's been working for years, and I haven't heard nothing about not working. So why won't they go and get that putting glass? It's a fair question. I don't know the answer to that. I don't really understand the technology and what's required enough to say they should do this or should do that. But it's a real crime. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think they should and go and get the serial number, model number, or whatever needed, and the company that made it and get what's the same product and use it in Newfoundland so it's proven to work. So why won't they do it? Well, 
<laughs> Excellent question. It don't make sense to me. There's Congress all time that they're, they're software. They're having problem with software. So use the same as they got. I don't know if there's a, a piece of software. Okay. I don't know if there's a piece of software that's out there being used that has the same requirements of the transmission plan that Nalcor has or Newfoundland Labrador Hydro has for Muskrat. I don't know if there's a, no, a direct relationship. I, yes, the way I see it is it comes from the, the dam and goes across land by power lines and the only difference from going to Quebec and to Newfoundland is that there's a water coming across the Gulf. So where's the difference? Why can't the same software be used? I don't know the answer to that question uh, particularly, but the uh, people, many people have posed the, you know, if there was a way that's tried and true, how come we haven't tried it versus this new approach, this new type of software required for uh, NL Hydro's plants? I don't know the answer. I really don't. Uh, I don't know that I've been thinking about it. I earn it all the time, and I, it gets me pissed off as I think, why don't they do it? And I've been going to call you, your show, and I can't figure it. I don't understand why they can't do it. Let's see if someone who knows way more about it than me can offer some yes, sort of... Uh, some uh, now, Corey, to come online and, figure, and explain why the same software that's using going to Quebec can't be used as far as island. It's proven to work, so why can't he use it? I appreciate the time, Gordon. Let's see if we can get someone smarter than me to give us an answer. Uh, yes, and someone smarter than me as well. Appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Gordon. Bye-bye. Bye. I mean, it's, it's a fair question to put forward. I don't know if there's a simple-as-that resolution, but for engineers and others who know more about it than I do and how and why this particular type of software was required, the difference between some other transmission. Because remember, the Muscrow Falls is as much about transmission as it is about a dam. It really is, even if you just look at the cost breakdowns. Some of the explosion in costs and the obliteration of the schedule, I suppose this all ends up in court. You know, very much like it did with the spats between Hydro and the province and Astaldi and the like. With GE, this goes to the courts. I mean, this has a massive implication on us. There hasn't been a very recent update. Well, we haven't had an update that says anything more than $13.1 billion, even though it is absolutely going to be more than that. There's still not even an end in sight. So we don't know where the spending stops because we don't know when the project is actually done in full, flip the switch, maximum generation for muskrat, making its way across this strait and to the island. There's still lots of concerns when that happens, though, too. Whether it be about not only the Labrador Island link, but the very treacherous nature that is the long-range mountains and what it means for those transmission towers and don't take it from me some of these so-called experts in the field and liberty consulting for instance talking about if there's a an outage because of a downed power lines in the uh, in and around the long-range mountains then we could be looking at prolonged problems of so blackouts and rolling brownouts i mean that's been put forward in front of the pub more than once by liberty in particular then there's still ongoing concerns. We don't think it's been fully rectified, whatever the problems may be, with the rattling of the synchronous condensers at Soldier's Pond. My understanding is that hasn't been uh, solved in full.
You know, it's remarkable that our partners on the mainland, Amer, and I spoke to the standoff they've got going with the Nova Scotia government at this moment regarding the Atlantic Loop. The $1.5 billion maritime link was done on budget, on time. Compare and contrast to everything regarding the Muskrat Falls project that was under our auspices as NL Hydro or the provincial government and otherwise. Then we hear some of the first of the uh, Auditor General's report about Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. And I, th- I do think there's much more to learn about what Denise Hanrahan's team at the AG's office has put forward in their audit. Yes, I know some important things have happened, and Jennifer Williams as the new CEO, no more bonuses and those types of things, and reined in some of the problems that were persistent for years inside that Crown Corporation. But we still need to have more in the way of answers as to how and why and who made the decision to, at the high watermark of employment at Muskrat, why the decision was made to have 500-plus independent embedded contractors as opposed to bringing them in as an employee of hydro costs us less more certainty you know and how some of these contractors got their contract there's specific questions that need to be answered it's not good enough to simply to say well there was 500 embedded contractors yeah how they got some of those contracts and the lucrative nature of some of those contracts when compared to having them hired as an employee of newfoundland labrador hydro even if it was short-term employment you know an employment contract of one year or whatever the number is as opposed to what we chose to do and what we did and how much it cost us and what we actually got value for money spent on some of those projects or some of those contracts still massive massive concerns shared by many And there's another report coming from the Auditor General's office regarding Newfoundland Labrador Hydro's operations. And, of course, NALCOR as an entity has been folded into NL Hydro. But we learned a lot in the LeBlanc inquiry. We're learning even more from, or even, we're learning more from Denise Hanrahan's work as the Auditor General. But still massive questions that are looming or in the offing. Anyway, let's check in on the Twitter feed where VOCM open line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, st- oh, Bruno has got, Bruno is, is <laughs> telling me that he's giving me advice from someone smarter than me, being him. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good, Bruno. He says $16 billion in accounting. That's the number I see bandied about. It's not one that comes from the proponent itself, but it's going to cost way more than the numbers that we have in front of us as per Newfoundland Labrador Hydro's position. All right, so let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, still a ton of time left to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. We've had baseball, Loretta Lynn, healthcare, Mosscrack. It's up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back. All right, line number one, Charlie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, uh, I was following the, uh, I've been following, I should say, the hydrogen uh, project uh, thing for quite some time. So I read uh, two articles from the Halifax Examiner. I would strongly advise uh, you to, 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 if you get a chance, to read those, especially the first one. Uh, they're looking at the guy Vichy, I think, was the company spokesman who was proposing it there. By the way, uh, 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 Nova Scotia is touted as the hydrogen energy capital as, as it's being touted here in Newfoundland as that. They have the same kind of line, right? Yeah, it's just branding. I mean, that's... Yeah. Anyway, the figures that come out from Vichy as opposed to what's needed in electricity and how they will operate without the wind... 
contrast to what uh, Guy Larry Hughes, uh, Dalhousie professor there, is is the figures, is quite astounding. And uh, as I said, it's worth your while to uh, to to get into it. How much electricity would be need to for each uh, kilogram of hydrogen? To give you, of course, the hydro- the uh, ammonia, you know. If you could uh, get chance, I'd like for you to bring it up on the air and. Uh, what did he say? Uh, Why don't you just tell us what he said? Well, it's 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 too, too uh, arcane. It's too too many details there. But it's basically one one guy saying one thing, and the other saying, "Look, this is pie in the sky. This 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 is not even close to being practical, right?" I'll quote you one guy there, uh, Liebrich, uh, another guy from Bloomberg, weighs in. He said, you can cut your hair with a Spanish army knife, and you can prune your trees with a Spanish army knife. And you can replace a tire on your Dutch bicycle with a Swiss, Swiss army knife, but you don't. And the reason you don't is because there's always something cheaper, safer, and easier to use. Just because you can do something with hydrogen, the hydrogen Swiss Swiss Army knife, doesn't mean you will, because you're in competition not just with diesel, petrol, coal, and gas. You're also in competition with other clean technologies. I thought that was a a good uh, quote from him. But anyway, uh, to give you figures on that uh, uh, would totally confuse everybody, and I would need to make some notes, too, because it's very, very uh, detailed in a couple of areas there, you know? Fair enough. I've read uh, many articles about green hydrogen. I'm not so sure I didn't recognize the names you just offered, so I guess I haven't seen those two particular ones. But... Like, I, I know for sure, based on what I've read, and, you know, some of this is a little bit confusing because I'm not so sure anybody really knows how the hydrogen world could or should work, given the fact that we're not actually doing it, like no one's actually doing it yet. But the cost, as put forward by every article I've read, the difference in producing green hydrogen when compared to gray and blue is extraordinary. It's exorbitant when compared to those two. The energy loss in shipping is obviously very, very real. The end cost of the consumer... Sounds like it's going to be higher than anybody should be paying for electricity. But here's my just initial thoughts about this project here. Unless we can understand some sort of potential backdoor to whether it be crown land or to hydropower, if if there's no provincial money, and there will be federal money in here, if there's no provincial money and we do what we can to protect ourselves, whether it be long-term, as, as long as the turbines are spinning, just at least uh, land, lease of crown land, because if it's between Risley and his customers in Germany and I don't have anything to do with it and I'm not a customer and I don't have to foot any of the bill, I'm, not, I'm having a hard time figuring out exactly what I should be worried about beyond the obvious backstops we need to have in place regarding access to water and the ground land. So I'm not really sure where my worry would lie. Well, a couple of things that they're saying is that uh, if anybody believes this is going to stay at uh, a private fund, they're, 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 they're really peeing in the wind because this will involve uh, huge sums of government money in the end. And I can see the reasoning for that. The, all, the thing that uh, Bruno is saying, uh, we should be using the wind energy directly, not to make something else because, of course, we have to uh, get electricity from other sources to do that. And he, I think he has a very good point there. 
But anyway, uh, I, I, I won't say anything more on that other than uh, I, I believe it will require, as somebody says, there are a few miracles before that gets on stream. Oh, yeah, and, and another point they make, there's other areas in the world that that uh, have lots of solar and wind, and uh, he said they would be eating the lunch of companies there in terms of cost, uh, uh, eating the lunch of companies in, in Canada, right? Anyway, uh, I'd like to skip briefly to you talking about the misinformation and the stuff and, uh, being said about COVID and the vaccines. Okay. It reminds me a little of uh, the early days of uh, back in the 90s and, and the early 2000s of climate change. Uh, uh, the, the, the amount of stuff that comes out, of course, oil companies and that were, uh, were, were responsible for a lot of the propaganda and the Koch brothers and so on. It reminds me of the same thing. People just don't uh, want to either study it and, 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 and reach their own conclusions. They buy into propaganda and lies, and uh, that's happening with COVID now. To me, going into a store and not wearing a mask, knowing that uh, you can catch COVID more than once and that it can be progressively worse for you in terms of your, your energy level for years, it's 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 totally out of whack. We have to be mandated to do what we should be doing anyway, you know? Just a couple of very brief comments on, on vaccinations. Is like the timeline is indisputable about what people were saying about the need to be vaccinated. People were clamoring, people were yelling to get a vaccine created as quick as possible. Then it happened. The original vaccine was really effective against SARS CoV 2, the original strain. Certainly wasn't as effective when it came to especially Delta. And now, with, you know, with the transmissibility of this bloody Omicron variant and on and on it goes, look, if it would, it would be ideal if a primary series plus a booster meant I was protected forever. Like, I mean, I think there's a lot of people going too far on a variety of things. Like, it's not the same as polio or smallpox because those vaccines can prove to be extremely uh, effective. This one, not as much. Absolutely not. It wanes over time. We all know it to be true. So I don't know what people think has actually gone on here. Is Pfizer and Moderna getting rich? Absolutely. You know, and the the business about people so wound up about Dr. Tam or Dr. Fauci or all these things, it's a global issue. It's hit everywhere. People say, well, how come the numbers aren't the same? Because we don't necessarily have the ability to trust in full some of these countries that people are pointing to, as well as didn't even uh, interrupt life in North Korea. Good God. We're supposed to all of a sudden trust what North Korea says about anything? So people wanted the vaccines right away. It had an emergency authorization. And yes, there's all kinds of concerns with how protective it is. But there does absolutely remain concerns with what the impacts are for repeated infections. So... I mean, I just don't know. And I'll say it one more time. The social scientists knew exactly what was going to happen. They were right. The medical community, not as right as the social scientists. Well, they can't get it through their heads that this is a worldwide uh, uh, virus that many people uh, uh, didn't, didn't get ahead of it. Many countries didn't. It, it, therefore, it mutated and, and travel and keeps doing that throughout the world. I said way back a lot of well I said a lot of people said it way back if you don't vaccinate the world you know 
But anyway, uh, uh, they can't understand mutation. They can't understand that a vaccine uh, uh, keeps us from, 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 from dying, from getting really sick and that. <laughs> they, they, it's still the idea that, like polio on that, you should take it and that's it. And how do you, how do you get across to people who just don't uh, get it? I, I, I don't know. I, nor, do, nor do I think that is something that I should be trying to do other than just sharing what I can find and what I, you know, sometimes what I think. Like, the whole concept of whether or not the vaccine offers any protection, whether or not it keeps you being seriously ill, hospitalized, or dying, in this province, I think, is a nice little unique case study because... You know, with this type of, this number of uh, people living in the, in the province, so five, let's use 525, 525,000. If since March of 2020, there's been 253 COVID-related deaths with the oldest population in the country, we're leading the league in so many of the underlying health conditions that are of concern, but yet the number's 253. If the vaccine didn't work, you could put a, a one in front of that, at least. So that, I mean, I don't know how people can dispute that very, very simple case study of just our province alone. When we use national numbers, of course, you're going to have all the variables that people will put in regarding population density and the vaccine uptake and the numbers of people get the third or the fourth or whatever. Just look at what happened in this province. And I think at that point, it's hard to say it didn't work. I mean, 253 deaths is 253 too many. But my goodness, the age of the population and the comorbidities yeah. I mean, it's it's real. I don't know how that becomes something that can be so easily disputed. Although, since I said it earlier this morning, I got lots of really harshly worded emails about what I said, but that's okay. I mean, that's part of the gig, too. Uh, last word to you, Charlie, before I have to go. Well, going out in public, as far as I'm concerned, you're you're uh, not not wearing it. Forget mandates. Use use common sense. You're playing Russian roulette, and uh, if people have to be mandated, they can't use common sense. I mean, I hate the things when, when I'm out somewhere in a store, but I'm damned if I'm going to stop using them. I think if they cured COVID c- completely, I'd still wear them, so I wouldn't get the flu or use it, so I wouldn't get the flu or whatever. But anyway, uh, if you get chance that Halifax examined two articles especially uh, number one they're quite revealing i'll see what i can do charlie thank you okay sir Take care. all right bye-bye uh yeah a <laughs> couple of things will people like i guarantee you when last friday came and dr fitzgerald gave us an update about further easing restrictions i'm willing to bet most people didn't even know there was any restrictions in place you would think that there's a dose of common sense associated with if you're ill, don't go to work or don't go to school, regardless of what that illness is. And a couple of things that are indisputable. And this is not about the virus or the vaccine. This is about ventilation and air purification. We have had that discussion. Remember, there's been times when schools had to close because of air quality concerns, mold and whatnot. So if we have learned nothing beyond the fact that we need to have proper ventilation and air purification, because that's good for all of us, period, for every respiratory illness known to man. If we did better inside on that front, and that's not even about COVID, that's about everything. You know, clean air, doesn't matter what you think about COVID or the pandemic or the scandemic or Tony Fauci or any vaccine, having cleaner air to breathe at school and at work and in other indoor settings, that's probably a good idea. Regardless, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two, say good morning to the co-chair of the Wilderness and Ecological Reserves Advisory Council. That's Graham Wood. Good morning, Graham. You're on the air. Good 
Good morning, Patty. Long time no talk to. Welcome back to the show. We will now keep calling it Werak after we got the long title out. <laughs> yeah, well, we've been uh, we've been finally uh, reappointed and approved uh, by government as a, as a new uh, council. And uh, myself and Stanley Oliver from Labrador, you may know Stan, um, the guy who was on uh, Last Stop Garage. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, we've both been uh, reelected, I suppose, to co-chairs of the of the new board, and uh, we had our first uh, inaugural meeting on October the 11th. Uh, the minister sat in and uh, kind of started off the meeting with uh, with uh, welcoming our new board, and so we uh, I could probably outline the members of the board. Uh, the returning members would be Joe Brazel. Dr. Evan Edinger, Stanley Oliver, uh, Tom Philpott, and yours truly. And the new members, um, we're really glad to see a lot of new members with tremendous experience uh, across the ecological footprint. Uh, Mary Allison Butt, who uh, is doing a lot of research in Labrador. Um, we have Tony Chubbs. You may be aware of Tony Chubbs. He's a Labrador biologist, but originally from Beta Sphere. Yep. And uh, Anna Lee Hines is from St. Anthony, and she does work in gross morn with uh, species at risk. Uh, Tony Kearney, who's uh, from Conch and lives in Conch, is involved as an entrepreneur in tourism there, as well as a writer and a poet. And uh, Carolyn Lavers, uh, who's from port former mayor of port And uh, Aaron Pearson, who uh, is involved also in the West Coast uh, research and different uh, faculties, different parts of forestry and so on. So we have quite a quite a great mix of expertise on the council. Where are we with the report that was, I think, delivered middle of the year in 2020 with all the recommendations? It was 25 years in the making. And, of course, wasn't just a rubber stamp going to happen. There was going to have to make its way to the cabinet. There was all kinds of pushback and some of it really over the top. But where are we? Well, uh, basically, that report, uh, we did a, a report in 2021 that went to cabinet. And uh, what came out of that is that we've been asked to, uh, the first priority is to meet with indigenous uh, groups in Newfoundland uh, and and look at areas that they've highlighted, uh, areas of interest that they see in that plan. Uh, they, may, they might want to uh, maybe expand or others. Uh, so we've been kind of given those marching orders to, to meet with indigenous groups first. Fair enough. The consultation process can be time-consuming, but if it's not done properly, then we get nowhere. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I totally agree with that approach because it, 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 it allows us first, we have to start, as you know, get out and get the consultations. But uh, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of work to be done here. As you know, it's not something to be done overnight. But it's interesting that, um, you know, since the report came out, uh, since the plan came out, sorry, um, WERAC has received over 100 recommendations for areas to protect during the public consultation period. And uh, even uh, even lately, we're getting uh, you know we're getting requests for areas to be considered. So uh, there's ten formal public nominations of areas uh, protected were were submitted during and since the public consultation. So there's a lot of interest out there in getting uh, in getting our province protected. And uh, 
we know, we all realize that uh, we need to make sure that these areas are there for future uh, populations and, uh, and allow our, our, uh, our people to be able to enjoy this rich uh, natural system that we have in Newfoundland. I mean, we talk about it so much since COVID came in that people got outdoors and started to experience what we, what we have in this province. Some of the problem, of course, because some conversations go right to the very end when a better place to start is at the beginning. So for folks who are worried about some of the recommendations on the protected areas, and we're talking about a pretty small swath of the province, geographically speaking, people are worried about whether that used to be a place they picked berries or they went for walks or they went fishing or what have you. What gets grandfathered in even when some of these areas are deemed to be now protected or further protected? All access. The only real difference that would be for these protected areas, we want people to be in these protected areas. The only real control that would take place in these protected areas is industrial development. Um, and and I'll say extension of ATV trails. Trails that are existing will all be will all be in there. There's no difference in the uh, in the cabins that exist there, whether they're able to have boil ups or anything like that. There won't be any uh, any industrial cutting in those areas, whether you're looking at, say, on the Northern Peninsula, those three big big zones there, or anywhere else. But basically what we want, and the plan is, is to keep these for all of use and allow our public to be able to go into these protected areas and really appreciate them. Yeah, because... Once you lose some of these areas, you know, people will talk about reclamation, what have you, but that's a catch-all word that more often than not is kind of foolish anyway. Things can't be reclaimed to their past beauty, even after some, even if it's a small-scale industrial or commercial application. So once you lose it, for the most part, it's gone. Well, I think that was a concern that we raised back in July when we wrote uh, the minister about our concerns with uh, wind turbines being placed in a proposed protected area in Cape St. George. Uh, you know, we did register our letter with the minister on that. And, uh, you know, uh, I know Mr. Risley did indicate that uh, any areas that were sensitive ecologically, that they would be removed from the plan. So uh, I'm not sure where that sits right now, but the fact is that uh, we don't see... Uh, you know, developing uh, the areas that we have proposed, whether they get approved or not, I suppose, that at least right now, we don't see that that should be a, a development area uh, for wind turbines. I mean, the whole environmental process is interesting anyway, because the government will identify areas of concern where more work needs to be done. But how do you mitigate concern regarding, say, for instance, migratory routes of a caribou? How do you mitigate concerns with impact on, you know, the whole flora and fauna? So it's one thing to identify, but how do we actually do anything to mitigate? Well, that's a very difficult answer. I mean, uh, I'll give an example. Uh, the Bay Nord. You know, we had that new power line come through to Baden Nord, right, from uh, Bay to Spare to uh, come by chance. And uh, roads went in there. And now we're seeing, uh, you know, lots of, uh, lots of intrusion uh, by ATVs uh, into, uh, into the Baden Nord. And, uh, you know, we're monitoring it, and uh, Newfoundland Hydro is monitoring it with cameras and stuff. But there's a lot of, uh, even around the, um, 
uh, I forget the river now, um, the, the bottom of uh, Fortune Bay. But anyway, in, the, in those areas, we're seeing intrusion into a lot of ATV intrusion into the reserve because we took out that strip of land uh, for the power line out of the actual reserve. But there was already a power line running through it. So, you know, we see uh, we see a lot of uh, intrusion now because of those uh, because of those roads. As you'll see with the power lines from Mustrat Falls. Yeah, well, I mean, the access to the power lines and some of those woods roads has opened up terrain that very few people explore. Now, all of a sudden, it's a much different kettle of fish with the number of people able to get to parts of the province that they never were in the past, or very, very few have. So, yeah, that all comes with a complicating factor. I'll give you the last word, Graham, before I take off to the break. Well, we're just, uh, we'll be keeping you updated, and uh, we're hopefully having another meeting soon. It's difficult to get people together face-to-face. You know, with uh, all kinds of issues, I suppose, but a, a varied expertise on this this council. But we're hopefully having a meeting soon, and we look forward to working with the minister, Minister Davis, and uh, and uh, indigenous groups in Newfoundland to um, to uh, move ahead on uh, trying to protect this beautiful ecosystem we have here. 32 areas were on the 25-year-in-the-making report. I appreciate the update. Uh, whenever you've got some more information to share, whether it be for meetings and consultation or otherwise, you're always welcome. Thank you, Patty. And the uh, co-chair of this is Stanley Oliver from Labrador. So I just wanted to – we've got good representation from Labrador, and we have excellent representation from uh, the Northern Peninsula. So we, we appreciate that and appreciate their interest in serving on the council. Stay in touch, Graham. Thank you. Take care. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That's Graham Wood. He's the co-chair of the Wilderness and Ecological Reserves Advisory Council. That's a mouthful. Important work in some of the pushback was intense when the report was put first put forward anyway you want to talk about that or anything else you can do it right after this newscast don't go away saturday morning join us for the irish newfoundland show send your request to irish nl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com welcome back to the program just to pick up on a couple of things that uh previous caller charlie had to say about the green hydrogen proposal on the Port of Port Peninsula, you all know the deal here. You know, 164 wind turbines, an ammonia plant, a hydrogen plant at the Port of Stephenville. Look, we would be an attractive jurisdiction. You know, we've got the land, the water, the wind, and the deep sea ports. And there's also, I think, last tally was some 31 wind-related proposals on the minister's desk at this moment in time, of course, that being Minister Parsons. The concern that an emailer had is that I put out there, uh, more in the form of a question than anything else, is exactly what the concerns would be for us as the residents, us as the taxpayers. And my, I, I think this is what I said, is if we can protect ourselves with the land. Because the Crown land is valuable. Of course it is. And if it's not going to be used for this particular proposal as it's currently structured, then we have to do whatever we can to protect ourselves from that. Number one. Number two, as, as long as I'm not involved as a taxpayer. Like Charlie says that there's no reason to believe that somewhere in the future there would not be the requirement or the request or the demand for some public monies to flow to Risley's uh, World Energy GH2. I don't know, but at this moment in time, like, ask the minister directly and ask Mr. Risley directly about provincial money. Risley said he hasn't asked for any, and the government said that they weren't going to put any forward. Now, there's absolutely tailor-made pots of money at the federal level that Mr. Risley is for sure going to apply for and avail of. So 
the summary thought was, if I'm not involved, if I'm not the customer, if we can protect ourselves with, you know, creating some sort of royalty on the water, ensuring that the hiring regime sees new Flanders and Labradorians with an opportunity to get the jobs in the construction phase and for operations there, thereafter. If the problem is for the cost of generating the green hydrogen, the energy loss, the cost of the consumer, which at the end would be in Germany, then if we put all the protections in place, and I know there will be environmental concerns, it's easy enough for me to not have uh, all of them in the front of my mind because I don't live out there, right? So that's why we've been asking for people in the area to talk about whatever their concerns would be. So if it is what people refer to as the eyesore of wind turbines, whether it's about the environmental sensitivities on the ground, whether it's about migratory routes for big game, caribou in particular, fair ball, fair concerns, absolutely. How do we factor that into the ultimate decision? Hard to say. We also spoke with Minister Parsons last week about the concerns being offered to me, most of them via email. I wish the people who are, have these concerns would call. Is... How can the people in the area ensure their voices get heard? I don't know what the polling looks like for how many people on the southwest coast or, in, pardon me, in the Stephenville Port-to-Port area support the project or don't. But you know full well there will be opposition. So to put those questions out there for people to consider, even if it's to put them in my mind so that the next time I get a chance to ask anybody involved, whether it be Minister Davis, Minister Parsons, John Risley, or other proponents of wind wind-generated electricity here, then we can try to include all of them because much like the Muscrow Falls project, even though this feels nothing like Muscrow Falls, if we have the questions that we can ask, hopefully we can get the answers, right? So regardless of who you are, but especially if you're in the Port-of-Port Peninsula, if you'd like to offer your concerns and or what you think might be upside, then please do. The big question is what's in it for us? You know, what are, how many jobs are actually going to be in place after construction phase? Full-time jobs in the operational uh, concerns at World Energy GH2. I don't know. I'm not so sure anybody does. You know, the cost of the consumer, as long as it's not me, that's kind of Risley and Germany's problem. As long as we do what we got to do to protect ourselves from any downside or if this doesn't work and all of a sudden there's the next play, whether it be backdoor to hydroelectricity, and yes, there maybe have to utilize the grid because the wind turbines may not be spinning all day every day and the amount of electricity they'll need for the final product, we need to know that up front too. You know, what kind of costs will be associated uh, with power for them? And how do we even get it to them, to exactly where they need it? Because I don't know if the capacity is there for the current transmission as it stands. So, and then, you know, even to use Bruno's comments, and I think Charlie backed him up here, is why aren't we using the wind for our own power? But, of course, we aren't them. We aren't world energy. Well, we aren't as of now, and nor should we ever be. So if they're going to build the wind turbines for their own use, then how do we even avail of any of that power if there's any such thing as surplus power? You know, they say they don't need all the water that's available. It was an old industrial reservoir used by Abitibi. So they say even if this gets tripled in scope, which is part of the future, we think, is if that doesn't have a negative impact on me, then your concerns being someone in the area were absolutely happy to have them on here. So, And remember, one more time, 
it's not the only game in town. It's not the only proposal. It gets all of the attention, I think mostly because it's probably the biggest one in scope and scale. And absolutely, a lot of the attention gets afforded to this proposal, proposal because of Mr. Risley. Right? John Risley has a history in this province. Not all of the things that people remember fondly. So that's part of why this one gets the type of scrutiny. And fair enough, we should scrutinize it to the ends of the earth. Why wouldn't we? Same thing when you read an opinion piece on the weekend about scrutinizing and questioning elected officials, and in particular the premier. And this is basically stemming from the, the fishing trip story. And of course, there's a Risley overlap in here as well. Absolutely, we can ask the questions that we should. And we should do all we can to get the answers. And the higher a position you hold, especially in the public sector, is the more scrutiny that comes with it. It's one thing to be a backbencher. It's another thing to be an opposition member. It's quite different to be a senior cabinet minister and or the premier. I think the story got more legs than it might have uh, uh, otherwise is pretty much because of how the premier reacted. You know, if there had to be no retelling the story of ridiculed and, and questioned about his charitable work and or still practicing medicine to keep his credentials alive. You know, I, frustration is real, and we all share a certain dollop of it based on, you know, a variety of factors. But I think that made the story bigger than it might have been. So I'll put it out there one more time for your consideration is, if he paid his own way, does that make the story go away? Yeah, it's probably never going away in full. You know, this will dog him for probably the remainder of his time in office. But will that do anything to temper the conversation? I don't know. It's a question. That's why I'm throwing it out to you. All right. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, another segment left to discuss whatever's, whatever's on your mind. doesn't matter if I brought it up or if you've heard others speak to it. If you want to change the topic, that's strictly up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. There's a, lot, a bunch of things that I have no say over including what gets advertised. So I'm getting pummeled here this morning about the ads that you just heard from the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Pierre Polyev. We can't turn away uh, one party or another. It's not legal. The concern will come with the content. And this is not even about uh, one party or another for me. This is about the issues as they're being debated and what's real, what's not, what's fake, what's inaccurate. Inside the carbon tax world, look... Regardless of what you think of a carbon tax, the concern that's being echoed, and people are picking up on it because that's how it works, right, is the thought that your the ta- carbon tax on your home heating fuel will be tripled this winter is just not factually accurate. Even if it gets through, and it probably will because of the agreement between the Liberals and the NDP, what's actually being put forward is, for starters, nothing kicks in until April of next year. And the tripling of the carbon tax is proposed over the next eight years. So I only said it because they're the actual facts. It's not about one issue or one party or another, one person or another. It's just not because that's what's actually being tabled on the floor of the House of uh, Commons. So that's probably important to add. You know, and I've said this before and it gets me in trouble, but I'm not not so sure why it's troubling to anybody. The whole bit about a price on pollution. And, you know, you can tell me repeatedly till you're blue in the face about China and coal and 1.6 of the global emissions. You know, they're all true, but I'm not so sure what that actually has to do with much. Between, this is not about policy anymore. It's simply not. It's about politics, right? And the reason I say that is because it's really easy to find this stuff out and to verify it. But in 2014... 
the go-to for the then Harper-led Conservatives, and people talk about Harper still being a driving force behind the Conservative Party of Canada, and he very likely is, and he, as an economist that we heard about many, many times, and he is, his go-to mechanism was a carbon tax. It was. You don't have to trust me. It simply was. It kind of is in line with uh, the conservative thought about the the market and the market influence and price points being a determining factor. That's kind of a big part of conservatism when we talk about the economic side. So in 2014, Harper was a carbon tax guy. And he still is absolutely a driving force in that party. But fast forward it, and the liberals imposed the carbon tax, and now it's the dumbest thing of all time. So that's where I think we can kind of stand back a little tiny bit and look at what it means, how it works. And that's another problem with the carbon tax, the way it's designed in this country. There's only four provinces that are around the federal government's plan, you know, the ones that get a rebate. And when the carbon tax triples, the rebate for those who get it will triple as well. I think there's a fair argument to be made in this province as to why we didn't choose a different uh, different structured carbon tax. We simply apply it to the fuel. It goes into general revenue. And, of course, the gas tax was always created to be funding road work, bridge work, and the like, even though we take in about three times what we spend on the construction season regarding road work and bridges. So would people be less uptight or frustrated or angry at the carbon tax if we had a rebate coming, which is a beforehand issue? I don't know. But the way we currently constructed it, I think the one saving grace inside the deal that then Premier Ball negotiated with the federal government is that your home heating fuels were exempt from the carbon tax. And I think regardless of what what party you support, that's the most important question being asked by folks in this province at this moment in time, is whether or not that exemption will continue. And we can only hope it does. But don't, you know, regardless of the party, the issue right now being debated in the tripling of the carbon tax is over eight years, and it would not kick in regardless until April, basically after this particular upcoming winter is concerned. So anyway, that's not a support for one party or another. That's simply the issues that are being debated on the floor of the House of Commons. And also there was an emailer asking me what the uh, conversation was about fraud at the motor vehicle, at motor vehicle registration. No one said there was fraud, but this is a report that's done by the government itself. It's the, what particular office is it? Um, The Professional Services and Internal Audit Division. They looked at two motor vehicle registration offices, one in Mount Pearl and one in Grand Falls, Windsor. Here's what uh, the opening salvo says. A government audit of operations at Newfoundland and Labrador motor vehicle registration offices revealed gaps where the potential for fraud within the organization was ripe. That's one way to open a story. So this is as old as 2020, this particular report. And yes, Minister Studley says that there's only four remaining recommendations that have not been fully implemented. But the ones that aren't are still pretty important. You know, again, like I said off the top, it's a real shame that we've got to go this far to protect government operations and our money from things we've seen in the past, like at the Newfoundland Labrador English-speaking school district. We all know the stories, right? The costly snow tires in the middle of summer and wheelbarrows and all this business where they split an invoice so it didn't require any scrutiny by a manager uh, at the district itself. So they've identified some places where there are the potential for monies to be misguided and or not recorded, whether it be embezzled, uh, access to license plates, and the fact that only four 100 car dealers uh, had the, the evaluation 
and the verified payments of only four out of 100 car dealers, things like that are of a concern. Has anybody done anything wrong to where the money has gone into the pockets of an employee or a manager as opposed to where it's supposed to go? I don't know. I don't know. But we can't have it available, so that can be the possible outcome. Those are the types of guardrails and safeguards that we have to have in place because we've learned the hard way where people, if there's an opportunity, they may indeed seize it. They may indeed be doing whatever they think they can do to benefit themselves and not the taxpaying public that are really the ones they're responsible to. They need to be reminded, you work for us. And the other story that get, certainly getting lots of emails, and now I'm a lefty for pointing out the, ac- the actual facts regarding carbon tax, so be it. I know facts are hard for some. This is getting absolutely clobbered in my email inbox, is the fact that now Bruce Chalk has been reinstated as the Chief Electoral Officer and the Commissioner for Legislative Standards. This all came after two bodies of work were done. Remember, at one point we heard about a whistleblower, we heard about a report, but then Nobody knew anything about it. We didn't know who had it, who had read it, who was going to do what with it. Eventually, it made its way to the House Management Commission, and at that point, there was an investigation done. The initial one was done by the citizen's representative, Bradley Moss. Right? He interviewed the people that were willing to come forward and speak, with, speak about what they saw at the office. So that happened. And then they went the next step further, and they had a former Chief Justice, Derek Green, have a look at Mr. Moss's work. And these are not my words. These are Derek Green's words. He's found Bradley Moss's work unreliable. It'd be interesting to have Bradley Moss on the show to talk about what he heard from Derek Green. So, yes, there were other issues that were verified by Mr. Green as being problematic to the point that could lead up to and including termination. But Mr. Chalk has been put back into his position as the chief electoral officer. We do know that all of this concern comes with whether it be the toxic workplace or nepotism, people in the family working for us. But basically, this all came to a head in 2021 with the provincial election. And we all remember it, unfortunately. Right the day before Election Day, there was the call off of in-person voting. There was a COVID outbreak at the time. And even Mr. Chalk at the time said he did not think that he had enough election workers to actually have people working at the polling stations so that would allow for in-person voting. So it became the longest and the costliest election in Newfoundland and Labrador history. So these are our Derek Green's words. This is the former Chief Justice putting forward this particular report. How that ended up being the reinstatement of Mr. Chalk, I don't think anybody really knows. The issue that I added to it is how does the House Management Commission evaluate the need for the general public, for the voting public, to have faith in the integrity of elections? Because you know the stories as well as I do. Faith in elections is not what it once was. Even if things are absolutely above board, even something as fundamental as a mail-in ballot, some people simply don't trust them. Not that that's reality or not, but that's just the facts of the matter because perception really does guide a lot of public policy. So that's the question I throw out there is, how do people evaluate faith in election officials, faith in elections NL, knowing what we know happened in the 2021 election? Longest and costliest. Of course, that goes a long way. All right, big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.